part two chapter one of saunterings in and about london by max slesinger this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter one down the thames river scene at london bridge colliers from newcastle the custom house the pool the dangers of the thames an englishman afloat reappearance of dr keith and mr baxter boating scenes the thames tunnel private docks how englishmen build ships for foreigners greenwich old soldiers in england and germany hotels and pot-houses greenwich park again we have reached the foot of london bridge the first of those mighty arched and pillared bulwarks which oppose the onward progress of ocean ships into the heart of the country the river at this point is nothing but a large settlement of steamers and boats of every description on our first tour up the river we saw many groups of small steamers and fishing-boats with sails of a dusky red but the masts of the boats were lowered and the steamers were of a lilliputian kind undergrown low-funnelled small-engined and paddle-wheeled they were passenger-boats plying between the bridges the class of vessels we see here have a more important appearance you see at once that these are no water-penny omnibuses coasting in between the city and putney bridge here are broad black hulls double funnels and capacious ones high masts and boats hauled up at the sides all tell us that these are hardy customers that can stand a stiff breeze in the channel and elsewhere some of them swing lazily on their moorings they have just come in from a voyage and are taking their ease at home others blow vast clouds of steam and black smoke flags are being hoisted on them hundreds of people cross and recross on the planks which communicate with the wharf or with other vessels they are just starting whither i for one know nothing about it a sailor could tell you all about them he reads the character of a ship in the cut of its jib but we continentals who are scarcely at home in our country are perfectly lost in this babel of foreign vessels and seamen even for one short trip to greenwich we are starting for greenwich you know we had better ask some porter or policeman to direct us to the boat we want lest by some mistake we might chance to go to hamburg boulogne or antwerp such things have happened here we are on a small steamer next to a black scotch coaster crowded to suffocation and just casting off the boy at the hatch is waiting for the captain's signal and the captain walking his paddle-box moves his hand the boy calls out the engineer makes a corresponding movement and the steam enters the large cylinders the machinery is in motion and the vessel has left the shore don't be in a hurry miss you can't leap that distance you've missed the boat as a thousand respectable girls do daily amidst these vast comings and goings of london there will be another greenwich steamer in five minutes so the misfortune after all is not very great what an astounding spectacle the thames presents at this very point below london bridge in autumn when the great merchantmen heavily laden coming in from all parts of the world cast their bales and casks on the shore from whence a thousand channels of trade convey them to and distribute them over the whole of the earth in autumn i say this part of the river presents a spectacle of a mighty astounding activity with which no other river can vie the vessels are crowded together by fifties and hundreds on either side 
colossal steamers running between the coast towns of france germany and scotland have here dropped their anchors waiting until the days of their return for passengers and merchandise their little boats dance on the waves their funnels are cold and smokeless their furnaces extinct sailors walk to and fro on the decks looking wistfully at the varying panorama of london life in a semicircle round those steamers are the black ships of the north they are black all over the decks the bows the sides the riggings and the crew have all the same dusky hue these vessels carry the dark diamond of england they are colliers from newcastle the industrial and political greatness of england springs from the depth of those coal mines deprive the british islands of their coal give them gold silver diamonds instead fill their mines with all the coins that the kings of this earth ever minted since the creation of the world no matter not these not all the untold treasures of australia felix could supply that living spark which slumbers in the coal without their inexhaustible coal mines the english nation would still be what they were a thousand years ago an island people poor weak and neglected like the norwegians it is so easy to find fault with god and nature instead of our dear selves do me the favour to look at this earth of ours of all zones climes and countries how few how very few there are without some unacknowledged treasure which if properly appreciated and turned to account would make a nation's fortune are the british nature's favourites is their climate more genial their soil more fertile than those of the countries we and others live in no but the difference lies in the use which the english have made of gifts and opportunities common to all their soil produces the finest crops in europe a grain of british wheat might be picked out of a thousand grains of continental wheat out of their coal mines they have raised the greatest industrial empire that the world ever knew of the stormy channel and the ocean which beat against their rocky coasts they have made bridges on which their spirit of enterprise careers and domineers over all the world water earth air and fire from these elements sprang the greatness of england they are common to all but those who know how to convert them into power prosperity and comfort are justly pre-eminent as the most practical nation our boat has just passed the custom-house it is a splendid building it has been burnt down six times and six times rebuilt on the same site radical free-traders dislike the building where it stands they would gladly convert it into a hospital a poorhouse or a commercial academy it will take a long time to realize these liberal intentions for at this present day duties to the amount of twelve million pounds are paid in the port of london alone nevertheless the english swear by free trade the vessels which come to london must all appear at the forum of this custom-house unless they prefer leaving their cargo in the docks or the bonded warehouses what crowds of sailing ships and steamers from all the harbours of the world what goings and comings what loadings and unloadings what a bewildering movement this custom-house presents it is actually painful to the eye and now thank goodness we have left all this turmoil behind us the further we go down the river the more closely packed are the vessels on either side 
for above two miles the broad thames is woefully narrow and the steamers which run up and down must just pick their way through as best they can accidents will happen and the man at the wheel must keep a sharp lookout those who never sailed on the thames have no idea of the number of black-funnelled monsters yclept steamers which continually whisk past one another there is one just now steering right down upon us within another second our sides must be stove in well done she has turned aside and rushes past but scarcely is the danger over when another monster of the deep comes paddling on and a large schooner is wedging its way between us and the said monster of the deep and on our right there is an awkward dutchman swinging round on her anchor and on our left there is a lubber of a collier with her gunwales just sticking out of the water and there goodness gracious there it is a very nutshell of a boat and two women in it passing close under our bows i really don't know why we did not upset them and why the others did not run into us that nutshell of a boat had a narrow escape among the steamers and those women were fully aware of it and there is no end of accidents and yet those people will row across the river it is a perfect blessing that the english know better than anybody else how to steer a boat under difficulties look at that man at the wheel immovable with his head bent forward his eyes directed to the ship's course his hands ready to turn the wheel that fellow knows what steering on the thames is to all appearance it is not near so difficult as rope dancing but i say it's worse than rope dancing it requires the most consummate address and then there's the responsibility the sailors of all nations stand in great awe of the london thames they navigate their vessels to the east indies they weather the storms of the cape and think nothing of its blowing big guns but none of them would undertake to steer a vessel from blackwell to london bridge it's too crowded for us they say and the little nutshells of steamers are enough to make an honest sailor giddy and the river is so narrow if you fancy you are clear of all difficulties and can go on there's sure to be some impertinent boat in your way turn to the right why there's not room for a starving herring to float and the old steersman descends from his high place and resigns his functions to the thames pilot if he is a conceited blockhead let him try that's all but if the vessel comes to harm the insurance is lost for the underwriters at lloyd's will not be responsible for any damage done in the pool unless the wheel is in the hands of a regular pilot and they are right for all the difficulties and dangers there are few accidents let us then trusting to the skill of that particular steersman who guides our own destinies and those of our boat look at the scenery around a forest of masts looms through the perennial fog the banks of the river are lined with warehouses some old and dilapidated while others are new solid and strong a stray flag fluttering in the evening breeze a sailor hanging on the spars and chewing tobacco a monkey of a boy skylarking on the topmost cross-trees of an indiaman these are some of the sights of the lower thames let us now look at the party on board our own vessel for after all we ought to know the people who are in the same boat with us and who in case of an accident would share our watery grave the boat is full 
a first-class ticket to gravesend costs nine pence and the society is of a mixed description of course but it is one of the peculiarities of england that a mixed society does not by any means present so striking an appearance as in germany or france it is not easy to look into people and as for their exterior their walk manners dress and conduct there is even among the poor classes a strong flavour of the gentleman the french blouse or the german kittel have no existence in this country the black silk hat is the only headdress which englishmen tolerate a man in a black dress coat hat and white cravat hurrying through london streets early in the morning is not as a raw german would fancy a professor going to his lecture-room or an attache on the track of some diplomatic mystery no in the pocket of that man if you were to pick it you would find a soap-box drop and razor he is a barber or as the case may be a man milliner or waiter or tailor or shoemaker many an omnibus driver sits on the box in a white cravat in paris they say with a black dress-coat and affability you find your way into the most fashionable drawing-rooms men in black dress-coats descend now and then into london sewers and that too without being in the least affable the women of england too do not betray their social position by their dress coloured silks black velvets silk or straw bonnets with botanical ornaments are worn by a lady's maid as well as by the lady possibly the maid's dress may be less costly the lady too may sweep her flounces with a distinguished air there may be some difference or other but who can see all and know all by just looking at people see for instance that lovely face under a grey bonnet there to the left of the cabin stairs she has just risen from her seat what a slender graceful figure pray don't look at her feet what ease what decency in her every movement and how grandly yet how confidently does she take the arm of her companion by jove he has got a black dress-coat and a white tie a handsome couple he is well shaven has fine thin lips with that peculiar lurking smile of superiority which the most good-natured englishmen can scarcely divest themselves of his auburn hair is splendidly got up his dress is of superfine cloth his linen is unexceptionable he has a gold chain dangling on his waistcoat and dazzling all beholders that man for one is a gentleman oh, he is nothing of the kind says dr keith he does not pay his tailor's bill he is a journeyman tailor and the coat i wear is the work of his hands it is a capital coat and i will thank him for making it saying which the doctor made his way to the young couple and forthwith shook hands with them they are as good as betrothed said the doctor on his return going for a day's pleasure to greenwich honest decent people those that's what i like in english prudery that it cares for trifles only take it all in all and you will find that the state of affairs is more satisfactory here than it is in germany that girl's father and mother honest and decent people i tell you have no objection to her gadding about for whole days and half the nights too under the protection of her sweetheart they walk in the park sit under the trees talk of love marriage household affairs morrison's pills and other interesting subjects and while they talk they eat cold beef and hot mustard 
and the result is an honest marriage without dishonourable antecedents in germany such excursions would be suspicious in the extreme where's the prudery i should like to know well well said the doctor shaking his head it's the nature of the people and of the tie said mr baxter a white tie and a black dress coat kill all rakishness and scampishness even in the most talented individuals choke a man with a white tie squeeze him tight in a black coat and he must needs be prudent calculating and respectable he can't help it it's for that very reason i have exacted from my son at heidelberg a vow that he will eschew white ties and black coats at least until he is married here we are at the tower there is nothing awful in its appearance from the riverside especially since it was repaired and whitewashed after the great fire the outer wall is black and two red sentinels creep to and fro along it on the bench just opposite to us sits an aged quakeress with three infantine quakers who have all along fancied they were going to westminster they see their mistake now that the seeing of it can do them no good whatever and they behave as quakers are wont to do under such circumstances they evince moral horror subdued grief and unctuous comfort which they apply to one another a fat gentleman who sports a linen shirt-front of the dimensions of a moderate sail the english are fond of displaying large tracts of linen on their ships and bodies does his best to cheer the stricken family in drab in the forecastle there is a group of workmen reading the weekly dispatch which convinces them that disraeli is the worst man alive some german musicians are congregated round the funnel and a good deal of newspaper reading is going on on the after-deck while a newsboy calls out the last number of punch small children in charming dresses are being fed by their mamas the men sit or stand about gaping or chatting and some stare with a very respectable horror at a group of french ladies and gentlemen who alone make much more noise than all the other people on board and all the ladies have their parasols up to attract the sun i dare say but it won't do the sun o oh, fairer and frailer portion of humanity will shine when we are out of london but not till then why should he what is an excursion on the thames without the mystic fog of romanticism without the garish light of day without the depth of perspective the objects on shore and on the water grow so to say out of the colourless mist presenting fantastic outlines suddenly mightily and with a magic grandeur on our left we fancied we saw hundreds and hundreds of masts rising up behind the houses from the very midst of dry land we thought it was an optical delusion but as we advanced the masts and the outline of the rigging came out strong substantial and well-defined against the lurid sky and just here there is an indiaman deeply laden turning out of the river and proceeding inland floating on locks what we saw were the basins of the various docks which hidden behind storehouses of fabulous size and number extend deep into the heart of the country the river broad as it is cannot afford space for the hundreds and hundreds of vessels which lie snugly in those docks our boat too turns to the left bank 
and stops near an apoplectic grey tower which reminds us strongly of the donjon keeps of the city of linz in upper austria a similar tower rises from the opposite bank these towers are the gates of the famous thames tunnel we leave the boat to look at this triumph of british science and perseverance the tower covers the shaft into which you must descend if you would enter the broad pathway under the water and sinking this shaft to the depth of eighty feet was the first step in an undertaking which since its completion has commanded the admiration of the architects and engineers of all nations the broad comfortable stairs and the pathway beneath the river devoid of ornament and lighted with gas do not indeed present any striking features to the unscientific visitor our railway tunnels are a good deal longer and what mortal unless he be a practical engineer has a conception of the difficulties of this particular undertaking still those difficulties were enormous the breadth of the river is above two thousand feet at high water the weight pressing on the arches is about double the low water weight among the strata which the workmen had to pierce there was a layer of floating sand and in spite of all precautions the water broke in not less than five times and several lives were sacrificed on one occasion mr brunel the architect had a narrow escape through a breach of several thousand cubic feet the water entered the tunnel which had then advanced to the middle the masonry and the machinery were destroyed it took many weeks before the water was pumped out and the disastrous hole stopped up with sandbags the workmen refused to go down again the contractors had to double their wages the works had to be carried on by day and by night without cessation and the strictest watch had to be kept on the river itself its tides and its movements at length after an enormous outlay of capital and ingenuity when even the most sceptical part of the public understood that the construction of a tunnel under the thames was not an impossibility it was found that the funds advanced by the shareholders were exhausted the parliament however granted a loan the whole of england took an interest in the execution of this great undertaking fresh machinery was invented fresh workmen were engaged the second shaft was sunk on the wapping side of the river and the english may say we carry out whatever we undertake to do with us great undertakings do not languish for want of public interest and assistance a crane standing for many years on a half-built tower as is the case with the tower of the cologne cathedral in germany no thank god such cranes have no locus standi in england maybe we are an awkward square-built people but after all we are a people and that's what not every nation can say of itself life in the thames tunnel is a very strange sort of life as we descend stray bits and snatches of music greet our ears arrived at the bottom of the shaft there is the double pathway opening before us and looking altogether dry comfortable and civilized for there are plenty of gas lights and the passages which communicate between the two roadways are tenanted by a numerous race of small shopkeepers offering views of the tunnel and other penny wares for sale these poor people never see the sun except on sundays the strangers in london are their best and indeed i may almost say they are their only customers 
as we proceed the music becomes more clear and distinct and here it is a miniature exhibition of english industrial skill it is an italian organ played by a perfect doll of a lilliputian steam engine that engine grinds the organ from morning till night it gives us various pieces without any compunction or political scruples the marseillaise german waltzes the hungarian rakowski march rule britannia yankee doodle etc does this marvellous engine grind out of the organ those london organs are the most tolerant of musical instruments that i know of they appeal to all nations and purses and what is more marvellous still they are not stopped by the police as they would be in vienna or berlin even though the cosmopolitan organ-grinder might descend tens of thousands of feet below the bed of the spray or the danube in the present instance the organ and the engine are mere decoy birds you stop and are invited to look at the panorama at the expense of only one penny you see queen victoria at that interesting moment in which she vows to love honour and obey prince albert you also see a spanish convent which no panorama can be without and the emperor napoleon in the act of being beaten at waterloo the chief scene of every london panorama exactly as if the great napoleon had passed all the years of his life in being beaten at waterloo the next view shows you monsieur kossuth on horseback on an hungarian battlefield which looks for all the world like an english park and Comorn, of which the impregnability is demonstrated by its being venice fashion immersed in water with canals for streets and gondolas for cabs of such like spectacles the tunnel has plenty but we cannot stop for them we hasten to the shaft ascend the stairs and feel quite refreshed by the free air of heaven there will be a greenwich steamer in five minutes says mr baxter encouragingly what was the expense of that affair under the water asked dr keif while we stood waiting for the boat one penny each i don't ask what we paid i mean the tunnel what did it cost oh, something like four hundred and fifty five thousand pounds the shareholders gave a hundred and eighty thousand pounds and the rest was advanced by the nation it would take another two hundred thousand pounds to make the tunnel fit for carriage traffic say six hundred and fifty thousand pounds a mere trifle as sir john would say remarked dr keif with a sarcastic smile six hundred and fifty thousand pounds make without agio six millions five hundred thousand florins in austrian money give mr struve that sum and he'll liberate the whole of germany and a large piece of france into the bargain what in the name of all that is liberal can be the use of that tunnel i should like to know isn't a good honest bridge ten times cheaper and handsomer you're a practical people you are but crotchety my dear sir crotchety that's the word most amiable of all german philosophers said mr baxter are you too among the philistines hundreds of foreigners have said exactly what you say and none of them seem to understand what practical purpose the originators of this tunnel had in view they wanted to prove to the barbarous nations of the continent that britons may walk under water without getting wet and without umbrellas 
and also that there are some things which are not dreamt of in the philosophy of a german doctor why that alone would be worth the money but now let me tell you that this tunnel cost very little more than one half of what waterloo bridge cost besides how can you bridge the river so low down as this why you would stop all the vessels and spoil the london harbour for you cannot raise a bridge high enough for large sailing vessels to pass under well we've tried another plan since the vessels cannot pass under the bridge we make them go over it we've tried it and we've done it there's the tunnel it is not the architect's fault if it does not pay westward the course of empire takes its way in the world generally and in london especially and the east suffers accordingly hence it is not worth while to add a carriage road to the tunnel the more's the pity but here's the steamer there's scarcely standing room on the deck besides the steamers there are greenwich omnibuses and there is an extra railroad running its trains every quarter of an hour from london to greenwich and yet look at the crowd which surrounds us on all sides london too has its tides and its high and low water mark its thousands and hundreds of thousands rush into the country and back again at regular periods from one twelve hours to another the majority of london merchants live in the country and yet they are able to pass their days in the city various means and modes of conveyance and these quick ready and cheap enable them to accomplish that feat as we go down the river the banks recede and the vessels lie in smaller groups in their place we see the very insignificant-looking yards of the london shipbuilders which extend almost to woolwich the seat of the government dockyard woolwich is the second depot of the country portsmouth is the first the english shipbuilders are cosmopolitans like the organ-grinders little do they care for their customers position religion or nation they build ships for every man who offers his money and for every country too for denmark spain austria russia and even for france we have launched many a steamer which by this time lies in some russian port in the black sea says mr baxter it's well for you if those steamers remain where they are but what if russia were to send your own ships against you you shall perish by the work of your own hands doctor you are vastly amusing some years ago i believe it was in eighteen forty i saw a ship launched at this very spot a brig and a fine vessel she was for the russian fleet the russian ambassador was on the platform and so was the consul and a great many titled and untitled persons an old friend my chum at harrow had taken me to see the fun honest fellow that a commander in her majesty's service and since dead of apoplexy we stood by and saw the vessel glide into the water and i made the very same remark you made just now of course i meant it as a joke but you ought to have seen how my poor friend the captain laughed at it he held his sides and his honest red face turned blue and purple it was a mercy that he did not then and there die of apoplexy ha <laughs> cried he at last do you think they can order a fleet as they would a cargo of cheese let the czar send his roubles and our fellows will build the ships i warrant you and good ships too and without any dockyard jobs no altering the poop no taking out boilers no cutting in halves eh huh? but what's a vessel 
nothing whatever sir it is of no use without the sailors he can't order them just order me to play the dancing-master huh that vessel costs a good deal of money and our fellows heaven bless them are very fond of russian money they like to build ships for russia just because we mean to hoist the blue peter against their eagle fear apprehensions eh? why sir i bless that vessel from the bottom of my heart that is to say i wish she may go to pieces on her first trip to kronstadt or that i may fall in with her with the law against her and a fair chance of some friendly conversation dear me if i should ever live to see that fine russian fleet burnt off athens for a fine fleet it is sir and we'll burn it too and build the czar another for his money of course and a fine one and if that new fleet shows its nose in british waters why damn me that's all what fun to see these vessels launched for the russian service that's what they all think except the ambassador and the consul and that's the reason they cheer away with such hearty good will just look at that old tar on the other side he thinks of boarding her one of these fine days eh we'll turn in the waist eh oh well turned english ethics said dr keif with a deep sigh as he stood with folded hands looking up to heaven do you think mr baxter that germany too will have the good fortune to get vessels from the english dockyards in consideration of certain money well and truly paid and on the strength of similar cosmopolitan principles oh, why not though for the present we do all we can to prevent the building altogether that's the strong side of our diplomacy but take my word for it if you order the vessels and pay for them you shall have them and they shall be burnt down to the water's edge on the very first occasion you have a good stock of sailors on your baltic and eastern coasts and with respect to you we had better keep a sharp lookout thanks for the compliment replied the doctor i'll report your words to the first lord of our admiralty whenever that high functionary as yet unborn shall have come to years of discretion dr keif said these words with a bitter smile and stooping down to pick up a piece of biscuit which a small boy had dropped he overturned a still smaller girl who was standing by his side and with the cigar which he held in his hand he burnt the hand of a lady near him to the intense disgust of that respectable female who vented her feelings in a piercing scream the doctor frightened and confused made a leap backwards and alighted with wonderful precision on mr baxter's left foot the very foot which it is suspected our aged friend has felt some slight twinges of gout and to add to the learned philosopher's discomfiture a gust of wind blew his hat off his head and lodged it safely on a large newspaper which a fat old gentleman was reading the biscuit meanwhile had been eaten by an italian greyhound the small boy screamed and the small girl screamed and the fat old gentleman expressed his indignation some people are so awkward the lady rubbed her hand and even mr baxter's temper was slightly ruffled you see gentlemen said that amiable man the consequences of a mere mention of the german fleet on board an english vessel that inevitable personage who haunts all steamers the man with the little book who takes the passage money from those who are without tickets has at length found us out his appearance puts a stop 
to all acrimonious remarks here is greenwich and here is the facade and cupola of the sailors hospital with a semicircle of wooded hills in the background we have left the fog behind us in london and the evening sun looks out from the clouds as if he would say i am alive and in health for all that the londoners believe me to be ailing or in articulo mortis our boat rushes past the dreadnought we touch the shore the engines are stopped we are at our journey's end we stand on the beautiful terrace in front of the hospital the house in which queen elizabeth loved to dwell and here at this very spot her courtiers used to take their walks their gold-embroidered cloaks are gone and in their stead you see long blue brass-buttoned coats on the mutilated or decrepit bodies of old sailors a blue coat a white neckcloth shoes white stockings and a large three-cornered hat with gold lace that is the uniform of the invalids who pass the evening of their lives in this delightful place greenwich hospital presents the most beautiful architectural group of modern england take the most gifted architect of the world bandage his eyes put him on the terrace on which we stand and then show him this splendid building and he will at once tell you that this is and must be a royal palace how could he ever suspect that all this splendour of columns and cupolas is destined to shelter a couple of thousands of poor decrepit sailors but that it does shelter them is honourable to the founders and to the english nation go to germany inquire in the largest and most powerful states what they have done for their disabled soldiers there is an hotel of invalides at vienna for austria too has her mutilated living monuments of the napoleonic wars and the wars against hungary but compare that austrian invalide house with this asylum for british sailors a low unwholesome sight courtyards alike inaccessible to sunlight and air cloistered corridors bare uncomfortable chambers vast chilly saloons and a population of old soldiers stinted even in the common necessaries of life it is a great piece of good luck for such a pensioner to obtain the post of watchman in one of the emperor's parks where for a few more florins per annum he has the privilege of waging war against dogs and ragged little boys go to prussia that military kingdom look about in that splendid city of berlin and do not for mercy's sake refuse your penny to those old men in shabby uniforms with medals dangling from their buttonholes who hold out their caps with one hand while they grind old rickety organs with the other if indeed they have two hands left these are the veterans who made prussia great and powerful in return for their services they have the inestimable privilege of begging pence from travelling englishmen in those days of corsican tribulations england too sent her forces to the battlefields of the continent england fought not only with subsidies but with her armies and her fleets thus much is clearly shown not only by history not only by the monuments which have been erected in honour of the duke of wellington but still more by the two great hospitals of greenwich and chelsea those two hospitals devoted to the disabled heroes of the navy and army give incontestable proof of the grateful kindliness of feeling with which the english nation honours its old soldiers 
england treats her cripples as a mother would her sick and ailing children the architectural splendours of greenwich hospital are by no means destined to hide poverty and misery within the gates are open you may walk through the refectories the kitchens the sitting and sleeping rooms wait until the old gentlemen sit down to their dinner eat a slice of their meat smoke a pipe of their tobacco take a pinch from one of their snuff-boxes admire the irreproachable whiteness of their cravats take a seat at their side on the green benches which stand on the smooth lawn from whence they view the thames its sails masts and flags the cherished scenes of their early career talk to them they like to fight their battles over again in conversation and will tell you whether they have to complain of the ingratitude of their country and which is best no matter how disgusted our german enthusiasts would be at the mere idea to be paid so and so much per limb or to starve on the general dietary of an austrian invaliden house or rot in the streets of berlin on an annual allowance which would hardly suffice to find a greenwich pensioner in tobacco and snuff all around the hospital and indeed in its immediate vicinity there are strange scenes of life such as are not infrequently met with in england a few yards lower down the stream stands in aristocratic exclusiveness the trafalgar hotel which i beg to recommend to every one who wishes to pay for a dinner twice the amount which would suffice to feed an irish family for a whole week if you like to take your dinner with people who hail the sensation of hunger as the harbinger of enjoyment you had better enter this hotel and remain there for a few hours the wines of the trafalgar like the lethe of old wash away the cares of the past for it is here that according to an ancient custom her gracious majesty's ministers meet after the parliamentary session they drink sherry and champagne and thank their stars that there are no more awkward questions to answer as a contrast to this luxuriant hotel we see on the other side of the hospital partly along the shore partly near the park and in the interior of sundry lanes and alleys a vast number of pot-houses tea-gardens and places of a worse description where every vice finds a ready welcome boys and girls standing at the doors invite the passing stranger good accommodation very good accommodation sir we know what that means and go our way but that young fellow in the sailor's jacket with the girl hanging on his arm they are caught they enter the house forward to the green leafy hilly park on the large grass plots whole families are stretched out in picturesque groups from the grandfather down to the grandsons and granddaughters and along with them there are friends country cousins maid-servants and lap-dogs with a proud and supercilious air for they know sagacious little animals that their owners are continually paying dog-tax for them this is monday the englishman's sunday there they are chatting laughing and even getting up and dancing eating their cold dinners with a good appetite and a thorough enjoyment of sunshine air and river breeze and they are all cheerful decent and happy as simple-minded men and women are wont to be on a holiday and on the forest green and the deer half tame come out of the thicket and ask for their share of the feast and we go our way up the hill lest we disturb the children and the deer 
from the top of the hill we looked down upon one of the most charming landscapes that can be imagined in the vicinity of a large capital that ocean of houses in the distance shifting and partly hidden in the mist the docks with their forests of masts the thames itself winding its way to the sea green hilly country on our side with the white steam of a distant train curling up from the deep cuttings and at our feet greenwich with its columns cupolas and neat villas peeping out from among shrubberies and orchards we share the hill on which we stand with the famous greenwich observatory probably the building has a better appearance than it had at the time when flamstead with generous self-denial established the first sextant on this spot but even in our days the exterior of the building is by no means imposing here then we stand on the first meridian of england the country's pride has up to the present time retained it here while the french established their meridian at paris but the communistic spirit of science undermines the existence of either and the greenwich meridian will not i am sure resist the spirit of the age it will sooner or later resign its pretensions in favour of the chosen of all nations the road from the observatory to the back gate of the park leads through an avenue of old chestnut trees they are in a flourishing condition and the chestnuts are quite as good as those of italy and southern france among these trees stands the official residence of the ranger of greenwich park a nobleman or gentleman whose duty it is in consideration of six or eight hundred pounds per annum to pass a few summer months in this delightful retreat and to supply her majesty's table with a haunch of venison once every twelvemonth the post is a sinecure one of those places which every one inveighs against and which every one would be glad to possess we have crossed the park and are at blackheath a sunny place which derives its gloomy name from the gipsies who used to be encamped upon it in the days of old lang syne neat villas covered with evergreens surround this black heath and a hundred roads and paths invite us to stroll on and on through garden land and park-like domains we resist the temptation the sun has gone down we return to the thames and take a steamer to blackwell on the opposite coast the breeze the park and the walk have made us hungry and thus it happens that very much against our will we find ourselves seated at a table with three solemn-looking gentlemen in black dress-coats and white cravats are busily loading with a number of large and small dishes each of these dishes thus english custom willed it is surmounted by a cover of polished silver or at least a metallic composition which looks like silver and each contains some sort of fish lovegrove's hotel has these many years past been famous for its fish dinners and the fame is well deserved nowhere except perhaps at antwerp does a gourmand find so vast a field for the study of this particular department of his favourite science but more charming than the most delicious eels mackerel salmon soles and whitebait is the view from the dining-room it is night we take the cars as they say in america and rattle on over the houses canals and streets to the city it took us just fifteen minutes to go all the distance End of chapter one